Well, we're going to have our main Bible reading now, and we're going to have a look at 2 Samuel chapters 19 and 20. It'd be worth you having sight of this. I'm going to have a look at this text together. And as I read, if it helps you to follow what we're doing um, or helps you to concentrate with what's been um, read, have a look for the shortcomings of David. I guess many of us will be familiar with some of David's successes in terms of uh, his defeat of Goliath. But have a look here about where he is falling short. And you can even be thinking about what are we supposed to do with that? Why are we being told that? So let's pick it up from 2 Samuel, chapter 19, verse 1. It says this. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters, and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hands of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who was anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent his message to Zadok and Abathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimea, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and twenty servants, 
rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed a ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei the son of Gera fell down before the king, as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai the son of Zeruiah answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mehibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For my father's house was but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, O let him take it all, since my lord the king has come to safety. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I to still live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me for such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me and I shall do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimna went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all of David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift 
that the men of Israel and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king and in David. Also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines which he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king of Amasa, then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he had delayed beyond the set time that had been apportioned him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do to us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. When they were there at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favours Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went out after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of uh, Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the ramparts, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then the wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. 
And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. They cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Alahud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abathah were priests, and Ira, Jarathite, Jara, uh, Jairite, was also David's priest. Okay, keep that open. We're going to have a look at that together. There's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet, so um, do make use of that as you uh, please. But before we go any further, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time now to look at your word together. And we pray, please, you'd help us to listen to it, to trust it and to obey it. Uh, and therefore, that you would be seen amongst your people as the God who is truthful, good, and rightly sovereign over us. Amen. Well, why are we told about David's shortcomings? And there are three in that text that I've uh, just read. Let me show you. The first shortcoming is his mourning over the death of his son, Absalom. Now, such mourning is understandable, but Absalom was an enemy of David. And David's concern for his death risks alienating the whole army who fought for him. Have a look again at verse 6 of chapter 19. Joab, the commander of David's army, said to David, For you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Second shortcoming is in chapter 19, verse 40. Verse 40, the king went to Gilgal and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. How come it's all the people of Judah, but only half the people of Israel? Where's the other half? Is David unable to unite all of Israel? Third shortcoming is found in the death of Amasa. David had made peace with Amasa in uh, chapter 19, verse 13, but then against David's will, Joab takes it upon himself to see Amasa's death. Now, Joab is definitely the commander of all of the army of Israel, but David is struggling to be in control. So why are we told about David's shortcomings? Is it to help us identify with him? You know, like David, we have shortcomings. If God was able to use David despite his shortcomings, maybe he'd be able to use us despite 
our shortcomings. You know, it starts to look a bit like God uses this sinner, David. This gives hope for the rest of us. Is that the point? Too rosy a picture of David, that would ultimately discourage us and set him apart from us. Why are we told about David's shortcomings? David is not a pious Israelite who is presented as an example to the rest of us. David is presented as the Lord's anointed, that is, his chosen king, the Messiah. The focus of so much of the Bible on David is not because he is an example Israelite, but because he's the Lord's Messiah. And throughout uh, 2 Samuel, and further we've been seeing in 1 Kings, we've been learning about the various aspects of what it means to be the Lord's Messiah. From a life of Solomon, and here from the life of David. His enthronement. We've seen David anointed as king over all Israel. His suffering. We've seen David suffer at the hands of his enemies, not least with the coup by his son Absalom, which has led to his exile from Jerusalem. And then his vindication. We've seen David's enemies destroyed, not least with the death of Absalom and David's subsequent return to Jerusalem. Thinking about David as the Messiah makes a lot of sense of what we read about him. His enthronement, his suffering, his vindication, all from the life of David, all teaching us what is involved in being the Lord's anointed. David and Solomon provide meaning to what it is to be the Lord's Messiah. So then when we learn about other messiahs, we know what to expect. The role of the Messiah comes not to us as an empty category, but one that's richly filled through the life of one such as David. But why then are we told about David's shortcomings? It would seem a bit of a switch to then think it's talking about us and is coming to terms with our shortcomings. But if we were to stick with this theme of the Lord's Messiah, what do they tell us about this one? Are we to expect the Lord's Messiah to have shortcomings? Is that what's going on? Well, at this point, it's worth paying some attention to the nature of the shortcomings that David had, because they are of a very particular kind. Of the three I mentioned at the start, the first concerned how he was relating wrongly to his enemies, in particular his rival Absalom. The second concerned how he was unable to rule over Israel, but only part of it. The third concerned how he wasn't in fact ruling at all, but Joab, the commander of David's army, was taking affairs into his own hands. David's shortcomings were shortcomings 
of being the Lord's Messiah. He was falling short of what it is to be the Lord's Messiah. For the Lord's Messiah was to strike down all his enemies and rule over all the people. Now when you put it like that, can you see that David's shortcomings are very peculiar indeed? They're not presented in terms of the everyday Israelite squabbling and arguments with the family, struggles with personal temptation, financial worries, problems at work. They're not the terms of the shortcomings of this man. The shortcomings of David are the shortcomings of what is expected of the Lord's Messiah. He's failing as this one. And actually, it's getting worse. Just have a look for me at the end of chapter 20, um, verses uh, 23. Let me pick it up. It says, uh, um, 2 Samuel 20, 23. Now, Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labour. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Alehud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. Zedek and Abathar were priests. And Ira, the Jarite, was also David's priest. Now at this point, if you've got a Bible, you do need two fingers. Because I just want to read to you an earlier part of David's life from 2 Samuel chapter 8. And to see a very critical comparison. So uh, keep your finger in 2 Samuel 20. But in 2 Samuel 8, uh, let's pick it up from verse 15. It says this. And have a think about what's the same and different. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Alehud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Hamilah, Amalek, the son of Abathar, were priests, and Zariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Now, both of those sections are presented as summaries of how David is doing as the Lord's anointed. And there are three striking comparisons. The first is that there is nothing corresponding to uh, 8 verse 15 in chapter 20. So verse 15 of chapter 8 begins, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. But that doesn't appear anywhere in the summary in chapters 20, 23, 26. I mean, David's now struggling to reign over all Israel. It's far from clear that justice and equity prevailed in David's kingdom. The words of 8.15 no longer describe his rule. Second comparison is that Joab is still over the army. Now, this might seem right in 2 Samuel 8, but now it's seen as a sign of compromise of David's kingdom. Joab was in command despite the intentions of David. Third comparison is that David uh, has now had someone named Adoram in charge of the forced labour. You can see it there in 20. 24 says there, uh, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labour. This is a new development and hardly a positive one. 
In other words, 2 Samuel chapters 19 and 20 are about David's decline as the Lord's Messiah. David's failures are not going to be the foil for his future successes. This isn't going to end up in a rags-to-riches story. Despite David's shortcomings, look at what he did. Be inspired. Think what you could do with your shortcomings. No, this is about his decline. He's on the way out. His ability to be the Lord's Messiah is getting worse, not better. So what do you do with that? This point, have a look at the promises that the Lord made to his anointed. It's in Psalm 2, which I read earlier. And in Psalm 2, we're brought into the world of the Psalms. And in order of appearance, we meet first in verse 1, the nations and the kings and the rulers of the earth, they're introduced as God's enemies. Second, in verse 2, we meet the Lord, who is enthroned in heaven and scoffs at them at the absurdity of their schemes and rebukes them in their wrath. Then alongside the Lord is the third character, also in verse 2, his anointed one, who is also the target of the enemy's hostility. He is the son who will inherit the earth, the ends of the earth. He will rule the nations with the rod of iron. That's the Lord's promise. And those who kiss the son are described in the last line of the psalm as blessed. Here's the question. Who is the identity of the Lord's anointed in the psalm? Who is it? Is it David? Well, at one level, yes. Psalm 2 contains the promises that the Lord makes to his anointed. David was the Lord's anointed. And so we find it is precisely these promises that David trusts on and calls on. Now, when he's on the run from Absalom, it was the promises of the Lord to his anointed that he would strike down all his enemies that were the grounds for his prayer for deliverance. David claims these promises for himself. Yet at the same time, the promises are left wanting. If we take Psalm 2 verse 8, it says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, to be fair, there's a little bit of ambiguity here. I understand that the ends of the earth could be equally translated the ends of the land, that is the land of Israel. It's hard to be sure if the psalmist at this point has a worldwide universal scope to the rule of the Lord's anointed, or if he's promising merely complete rule over Israel. But either way, this expectation of the rule of the Lord's anointed is left wanting. David doesn't do it. Not only does David not rule over all Israel, he's not even ruling because Joab is. You can begin to see where this is going. David is the Lord's anointed. As such, we learn from him what to expect from the Lord's anointed. Yet David fails as the Lord's anointed. And as such, we're led to expect the arrival of another Messiah. Ultimately one who will not fail, but will bring about God's purposes for his anointed one. 
Well, we began by considering why it is that we're told about David's shortcomings. In particular, are we told then to provide encouragement regarding our own? God uses the sinner David, that gives hope to the rest of us. But we've been reminded that David's not presented to us as an example Israelite, but as the Lord's Messiah. He teaches us what to expect from the Lord's Messiah, so that when the Messiah comes, well, we know what we're talking about. We've seen that the shortcomings of David are not the shortcomings of your average Israelite, but are the shortcomings of being the Lord's King. These shortcomings are not presented as one who is getting better in his role, but rather one in decline. And as we've concluded, that David's failures leave the Lord's promises to his anointed as still outstanding. David's failure as the Lord's anointed leads us to expect the arrival of another Messiah who will not fail, but will bring about God's purpose for this anointed one. In short, despite the notes of decline in these two chapters, there is also a peculiar note of expectation. The Lord's promises to his anointed remain. And we're encouraged to lean in, as it were, as to how they will be kept. Now, this ties interestingly with um, what we've been looking at in 1 Kings, because here is another Messiah, David's son Solomon. Could he be the one who will bring about God's purpose? Well, what we're looking at last week is that he failed. And so we look on, we continue to read on. Because the problem is, kings who have shortcomings, kings who fail, jeopardize the whole kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is only going to be secure when a king is installed who is perfect. And of course, that king has now been installed. Uh, Great David's greater son, And this continues to draw our attention to his perfection, his obedience, even obedience to death on the cross, secures the kingdom of God. And as members of that kingdom, we share in his victory. Well, let me pray. And then uh, if we do want to have a short time of uh, comments or questions, we can do. Um, So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look um, back at David's life and compare it with Solomon. And as we see these two men in their uh, shortcomings and ultimate uh, failure, pray please that we would not simply uh, moralize and uh, take courage that, uh, that we have similar failings and therefore all is not lost. But pray in the first instance that we would see their significance as your king. And that therefore their failures and shortcomings jeopardise your kingdom. And we thank you as we continue to lean into that storyline that now one has arrived who is the perfect king, who will be forever obedient and therefore secures the kingdom. I pray that would give us great confidence and would help us this week to continue to trust in that king. And we thank you that his obedience not only secures the kingdom, um, in in the obvious way, but also his obedience to death on the cross is the means by which we can be forgiven and given entry to your kingdom. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.
Okay, time for a few maybe quick questions or comments if you have any about what's been said. But I don't need to be. But you are welcome. Interesting, those in CryptoSurf, we're going to be thinking a bit more about this because, of course, who is the first Messiah? Not David. Goes all the way back to Adam. So we're going to be thinking about him as that uh, key uh, figure, as the first ruler over the world. Yes, Hannah. Oh. Interesting question, which we're um, going to be thinking a bit more about this afternoon as well. But let me say something now. So for recording, if there is these various messiahs, you know, who are they? Do they fill in the whole timeline? What about people like Abraham and Moses? So um, so one thing's interesting. I think, you know, when we look at the... Um, uh, the promises in Genesis 12 to Abraham, which is the fairly first time the promises are given. And there's no mention of a king there, of a ruler. I mean, Abraham will be given the land, and the expectation is that he will rule over the land. But it's not really till we get to David that the promise is put in terms of a king will be installed, which is quite interesting. And I think that's probably why we think that the idea of God having a king starts with David, because that's where the idea is developed. So really what we have in the Bible is a, um, it's the same promise, but it's basically developed um, and expounded and which is really why we're given the likes of David and Solomon, because you could just think, well, can't we just cut to the chase? Can't we just install Jesus from the beginning? And we could just not, not mess around with all of, all of what's happened. But the purpose of, of, of this is that we're learning who God is, what his purposes are for the world, and, f and beginning to fill out a real richness as to what to expect. Um, and so when we get to... Jesus, well, this is a thing that's classically, you know, um, when it's Jesus King, you know, that can be sometimes a popular way for a preacher to illustrate that is, is to make a parallel to the, the Queen. You know, she's a bit, he's a bit like the Queen, you know, kind of the ruler. And you kind of think, well, that doesn't even work these days because the Queen doesn't, doesn't even rule. But when we get to Jesus as the Christ, that category is absolutely rich with meaning from the storyline all the way through. So there is a, there is a, uh, a de development and an expounding. Now, interesting, the question that Nikki has asked before um, about, which again, we might think about this afternoon, is how much did they know? Because the way Paul puts it together, 
he's happy to say there's a first Adam and there's a second Adam. So he, he's, he's putting the whole Bible together, and it's, it's amazing. You know, they're huge links. And the question is, well, how much did they know? You know did they think of David as um, Adamic? Did they think of Solomon as an Adamic king? And when you look at Solomon, it's, it's I mean, there's loads of parallels. You know, he, he knew to rule the world. Um, he had, you know, he's described in, in Adamic terms. But how much that they were able to put things together until the mysteries revealed is, um, is a kind of an interesting question. But um, so I think that's kind of what's going on. Now, of course, from David's time, and this is what we're going to get to see in one or two kings, is that we'll see, well, basically, I mean, a spoiler, the kingdom divides because of Solomon is, is, was promised. And so you've got a whole line of kings in the north and a whole line of kings in the south. And so basically the rest of the book of Kings is the story of the succession of kings. The problem is there's not many good ones. Um, but the trajectory set is that we're looking for this king who ultimately will bring the kingdom together and will rule. So it's a bit of a waffle, but is that... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the only I mean the only issue is is you I mean so they, they are I mean and, and it's worth just kind of getting the language clear. So basically, there's a number of terms which are synonymous. So basically, if I can remember this, we're all feeling a bit jaded. So uh, God's King, the Lord's Anointed, the Son of God, the Messiah, are basically all 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 the same kind of word group. Um, which is quite striking when you first hear about it, because I remember when we've talked before about Jesus isn't the first Messiah, and people go, oh, what do you mean by that? But the Messiah just means the Lord's anointed, and David was the Lord's anointed, Solomon was. So they, they're all kings. It's just that what we need from that king is not what, not what these kings provide, and therefore the kingdom of God remains in jeopardy, the promises remain in jeopardy, until this king is installed. But when he is, yeah, cool. Everyone happy? Time for one more? In which case, let's leave it there. We're going to sing um, a song which picks up on the installation of God's king and the work, his cross work, on our behalf. Let's sing, O to see the dawn. <laughs>